This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Emerita Joan Beaumont. Joan is a historian at the Australian National University in Canberra. She's co-edited a book with Alison Kadzow called Serving Our Country, Indigenous Australians, War, Defence and Citizenship. You are listening to 3RRRFM, it's Uncommon Sense. With me, Amy Mullins, I'll be taking you through till noon today. And as I mentioned before, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Professor Emerita Joan Beaumont, who is an eminent historian uh, in Australian history and military history. She's based at the Australian National University uh, at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs and And as I said, she's written many books, um, one including Broken Nation, Australians in the Great War that won uh, many, many awards uh, and rightly so. And this particular book we'll be discussing and the contents of is Serving Our Country, Indigenous Australians, War, Defence and Citizenship. And the co-editor with Joan is Alison Kadzow. And there are many contributors to this book. It's out through New South Press. And I'm really looking forward to having an in-depth discussion uh, with Joan now. So thank you very much, Joan, for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Amy. Thank you. It's really great to to be talking about this. Obviously, we have Anzac Day coming up tomorrow and uh, and the usual kind of um, discussions and tropes that we see in the mainstream media around Anzac. It's very traditional. Uh, It follows a very patriotic line. Um, But often with the way that we remember uh, the the wars and our military history, uh, many people can be consciously or unconsciously excluded from those commemorations and it's important to bring them back in and one of the ways we do that is through rigorous evidence-based history of which you and uh, these contributors in the book have done. So uh, thank you for that and I want to uh, dive straight in to um, the the subject of this book which is uh, Indigenous Australians who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, they identify as coming from that uh, of as of that descent and you talk about um, how these uh, the, these Indigenous people who have participated uh, and served their country throughout many wars across uh, Australia have been discriminated against systemically and that is in a broader context obviously as you outline of uh, them not being recognised formally as citizens of um, the deep racism that existed around uh, talking about castes um, and half castes. So let's uh, start with the the first war that many people may not uh, even realise that there was involvement uh, of Indigenous Australians in, which was the Boer War. Um, certainly not many people even may know what the Boer War was about. But could you, um, first of all, share with us uh, where we started with that as, as the basis for this whole chronicle of uh, involvement in, in military service? Yes, certainly. Um, well, as you mentioned, the Boer War is, is not an especially well-known part of Australian history, probably just as so, since it was a, a rather nasty imperial um, war. But um, it started just at the time that Australia was federating, and, and the various colonies did send off contingents 
uh, too far out in South Africa. And uh, although it's quite difficult to trace how many of those men may have been of Aboriginal descent, um, John Maynard, my colleague, has done some very detailed work on this subject. And in his chapter, he explains, you know, that a small number of Aboriginal men did, it seems, get to South Africa. Some of them were trackers, and I mean, one of the um, common themes that emerges, I think, at various times in our book is that when Aboriginal men did get involved with the defence forces, um, their abilities in reading country, understanding landscape, uh, were much valued. So, yes, a, a few Aboriginal men did, did get to uh, South Africa, and that's a story which is not terribly well known and which we've brought out in this book. Exactly. So um, in terms of the uh, First World War and the Second World War, which were obviously more front of mind in uh, the way that we commemorate and Anzac Day, um, you know, that comes from uh, an understanding of Gallipoli being a significant part of Australia's birth, and that's certainly contested among historians. Um, it's possibly less contested in mainstream discussions uh, when we commemorate Anzac Day, but it certainly uh, does have an element of uh, the First World War, the landing in Gallipoli, and uh, Australians proving themselves. Now, um, in terms of the soldiers that have been, that partook in uh, the First World War, I mean, the First World War wasn't necessarily uh, all that uncontroversial. It was particularly uh, conflict-laden, not only overseas, but at the home front, which you have explored uh, in your previous books. And, uh, and certainly enlistments dropped off substantially as the war progressed. How did Indigenous Australians uh, get involved in the First World War? And certainly in a time when uh, involvement in war was uh, contested and, uh, and not compulsory, it was voluntary. Yes, well, that's certainly an interesting story. Um, at the time, the policy that the Australian authorities adopted was that, um, as you mentioned, all men for the Australian Imperial Force or the AIF had to be volunteers. Um, but it was decided, and had been in fact decided just a few years before war broke out, that anybody who served in national service or in the Australian Defence Forces um, had to be substantially of European origin or descent, as it was called. So when World War I broke out, uh, although it wasn't, well, it wasn't really explicitly stated, but it was the, the policy that Aboriginal men were not eligible because they, were not, they didn't fit that criteria. But despite that, it... Um, probably over 700 Aboriginal men managed somehow to get into the AIS. Uh, they seem to have turned up at recruiting depots where a sympathetic or an eager recruiting officer or medical officer was willing to ignore their Aboriginality. So on their enlistment forms, they're described as dark um, and their, their status as Aboriginal men is not, not explicitly recorded. And uh, then in the middle of World War One. As both, um, well, I suppose as manpower pressures became very intense, the policy was changed to allow what were then called in the racialised language of the time half-caste to volunteer for the AIF. But the military was quite explicit that these men had to have 
one European parent and that, that they had to be men who had lived in white society and in a way which of course now seems very offensive they said well if only Aboriginal men who've lived in white society will be able to live with white soldiers in a way that doesn't cause offence to white soldiers. So across the World War One, in the end uh, more than a thousand Aboriginal men have managed to volunteer. Not all of them got overseas. What our research has shown is that some were then excluded when they got to recruitment camps, um, deemed not to be suitable to go overseas. Uh, but it's been very difficult over the years to know precisely what their experience was because, as I've said, when they enlisted, they were not formally counted as Aboriginal men. So one of the big protests that's been going on in recent years at the War Memorial and the National Archives and other places has been to compile an authoritative list of, of who were these Aboriginal men who volunteered during World War One. And what, in terms of the, uh, the their involvement, what kind of activities were there? Because you said that uh, many of them would have gone to training camps and uh, in the AIF uh, there were a range of activities such as uh, being a frontline soldier. Certainly you could be um, part of the Air Force. Uh, what types of activities or um, conflicts would they have been engaged in and, and were um, most involved in? Well, it seems that, that a significant number of Aboriginal men in World War One joined the light horse units, in part because of their experience in working in country and uh, and being able to ride horses and manage horses. Mm. Um, but um, also many of them ended up on the Western Front um, and some served behind the lines, you know, in more administrative positions. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a fairly diverse um, record. And one of the most interesting things I think that our book shows, and indeed the memories of those people we interviewed confirms, is that once Aboriginal men were admitted to the Defence Forces, and this is not just in World War One, but across other conflicts, they found that they were treated with a much greater equality than they had been in civilian life. Now, that, of course, is a very positive aspect of their story, but the difficulty for the historian has been actually to find what I might call a distinctive Aboriginal story once the men have joined the Defence Forces and they just sort of disappear into the, into the mass of the AIF. And clearly in battle, it didn't really matter what your skin colour was. Mm. Your experience was, was very similar. And that's, as I say, a theme that continues right through to Vietnam, but you know, in the end what mattered was that we were a fighting unit together and skin colour was irrelevant. Yes, and you uh, and in this the chapter about the First World War, a, a great example of that is that a Warimi a Aboriginal man, Albert Lily Knight, uh, lost his life in France. And you have primary documents, uh, records that are kept, at least from those who served with these soldiers who talk of them. And uh, his commanding officer, Lieutenant A.J. Gardner, wrote in 1918, it is with great regret and extreme sorrow I write these few lines. He was killed 
killed during an enemy bombardment of our trenches. He was highly esteemed by officers and men of his company. A good lad, a fine character and an excellent soldier. He has a very nice grave in a village called Albany. Um, that's obviously one poignant example of just how much uh, respect and regard that uh, the, the their fellow soldiers had for um, for them. But were there more or or some quality first-hand records um, that were either written or oral uh, that were first-hand or second-hand from Indigenous uh, peoples themselves from their experience in World War One. Well, sadly, there aren't a lot of those. Um, we have the kinds of records that you just quoted, which is by officers and others with whom Aboriginal men served. We also have some letters home that's a you know, a very good source of um, understanding the experience of soldiers and Aboriginal men did write home. But we don't have a lot of um, memoir material uh, written after the war, nor, of course, do we have the kinds of public opinion surveys that are just so commonplace today. So um, it is difficult to, to trace very closely and very finely the experience of these soldiers. I think John Maynard's done a superb job in that chapter, but really he's trawled almost everything um, that's available in the public record. And when we, we did a lot of interviews for this um, book, Nick um, Dodson led a team of, of academics and scholars, and they did over 200 interviews right across um, the whole of Australia about uh, Indigenous communities' memories of, of the experience of war. And, I mean, these are a marvellous resource and we're putting these on a, a website, we have put them on a website, um, which, uh, which is available to the public called Our Mob Served. But it is notable that even when, when today's communities speak about World War One, they don't... The memory is not very detailed or very extensive. And often uh, when I was listening to these, I noted that... Um, Today's Aboriginal communities will go back to the same records that we, we looked at, like a man's military personnel dossier, to find out what happened to them in World War I. And as is so often the case, it seems that men did not talk to their families a lot about the details of battle. So what families will remember is more the sort of aftermath of the war, the dif difficulty that um, these soldiers had in coping, say, with their injuries or returning to civilian life. And, of course, for Aborigin Aboriginal uh, men from World War One, the return to civilian life was extremely difficult because they came back to a society that was still profoundly racist and where their lives were governed by the protection legislation in many states. So that, that contrast between their military experience and their civilian experience is very stark. And as I say, that what their families tend to remember is, I think, more that the, the, the narrative that, well, they went to fight, they mm -hmm. came back to a society that still discriminated profoundly against them. Mm. And one of the uh, other examples in that chapter, um, which is 
uh, quite significant in terms of the injuries that you speak of is uh, Alfred Frederick Bolton from New South Wales was one of the many Aboriginal men to suffer from shell shock and uh, his particular experiences highlight just how traumatic um, you know his ex- his experience of war was that he had uh, a bayonet wound to the knee in Gallipoli uh, he was then wounded in 1916 at the Somme in France and obviously many of these men uh, across all of Australia who were fighting in, in World War One suffered some very traumatic experiences. But as you say, when they returned home, um, the Indigenous Australian experience is compounded by the fact that uh, they have served their country, represented their country um, alongside uh, all of their other fellow mates and then they've come back and are treated very, very differently. I mean, how, what was the experience um, of Aboriginal men and women um, who were doing auxiliary work in the interwar years? Because I know there was, uh, as it has been referenced, a great deal of activism um, to seek recognition and respect of Indigenous peoples during that time. Yes, well, well, John Maynard and another of our, our contributors, Noah Reisman, have traced the connections between military service and activism after both the First World War and the Second World War. And it does seem that a number of the people who emerged as, as prominent in the campaigns for civil liberties for Aboriginal people were people who had been empowered by their experience um, during wartime. They, I guess, learned new schools, they'd also got a greater sense of their own personal agency and came back to Australia with that. Um, the the impact of the activism before World War II and after is very different and I think one of the things that, that stands out for me as an historian is that the changes in the military towards um, Aboriginal men and women very much reflected the wider context within Australia. So when Australia is deeply racist, as it was at the time of the white Australia policy, so too is uh, is the military. But when Australia starts to become more assimilationist, then the military goes with it. And just and, and much of the efforts of the military or the defence forces today to be to attract and incorporate Indigenous men and women into the services, I think reflects a wider uh, agenda of reconciliation. So in the years after World War One, although there was an Aboriginal activist movement, which in some ways was resonating with black rights movements in the United States, they had very little impact on particularly military policy. When World War Two started, the same attitude prevailed as uh, had prevailed in World War One. Basically, you could you could volunteer for the defence forces if you were, um, if you were European in descent. In World War Two, of course, they did. Um, include a lot more Indigenous men, particularly Torres Strait Islanders, in military units. But the activism of the interwar years had, had not been able to get much traction in changing um, the wider uh, legislative, political context around Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, and let's talk about the chapter that you have co-written with Tristan Moss, which is uh, called Australian Military Forces in the Second World War, um, because as you say, very little changed in terms of the criteria uh, that existed and the laws that were uh, discriminating against Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander, uh, Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders um, in Australia. And I wonder, in terms of um, that war, and the experience, particularly given that uh, when there was a threat uh, coming from Japan and obviously a great number of Indigenous Australians living in the top end of Australia, uh, particularly Darwin, what uh, the experience was there uh, on the home front as well as those soldiers who were participating? Yes, well, you're right to, to point to the the change that occurred when the north of Australia was under serious threat from Japanese attack, because that really was you know, a watershed period. And in our book, we we do cover a number of aspects of the impact of World War Two on um, those Indigenous populations. There's chapters on the use of Aboriginal people in labour forces that supported the war efforts by Geoffrey Gray. And Sam Furphy has looked at um, the wider social impact, particularly you know when... Um, a significant number of Aboriginal people, women and children, were evacuated from the north uh, and their lives were profoundly disrupted by that. So you get a whole lot of things happening in the north from 1941, really, but particularly 1942 on. You also get Aboriginal men being recruited into... um, units that support army operations in the north, things like the North Australia Observer Unit. They're used as coast watchers to try and patrol the coast to see if there's uh, any sign of Japanese presence in the north. And then most notably, um, uh, a whole unit is raised from the Torres Strait Islanders uh, to protect um, that area, those islands. So there's a quite significant impact, or very significant impact of war on a whole range of indigenous aspects of indigenous life in the north. And what it's was this? Apologies, Kim. I, I was just wondering, what was the scale when you're talking about um, Torres Strait Islanders and their involvement? Uh, just how many uh, do we know participated? Oh, it's quite it's quite small numbers. I mean, the battalions usually you know um, around a thousand, um, but I guess. I mean, in in all of these cases, we're not talking about huge numbers of Indigenous people being involved um, because of the um, discrimination on their their service. But but I think um, the wider impact, you know, is is probably well beyond the numbers. Mm. Um, I agree. I think the Pacific area and that conflict is was vital for Australia's protection so the impact of their involvement would have been much greater than uh, just the number of people involved. And the impact of the war on them, you know, mm. their, their experience of receiving pay for example um, in, in many cases Indigenous people who lived on missions never received direct wages or men on pastoral stations or who just got rations instead of wages well when they join the army for the first time they're getting pay although in some cases they didn't get everything they were entitled to but also they're being as i say exposed to new experiences developing new skills and and so i think we we can trace significant longer term impact 
of military service on, on Indigenous communities and the individuals involved. At least certainly that's what many of them testified to, you know, that, that the experience of, of serving uh, profoundly shaped their later lives. Yes, and and you do talk about that in the introduction that uh, whilst it is at times difficult to exactly know what the motivations were for individuals uh, to sign up to serve given how much discrimination they faced and uh, the conflict that already existed uh, certainly from colonial times between uh, those who came here and took the land from Indigenous Australians. Uh, but certainly there are some indications of, uh, of what those motivations would be and you've just referenced some of them which is to uh, improve their economic situation and obviously to utilise that position to improve their political status to lobby and be uh, activists for um, recognition uh, and also then you talk about uh, it, using it as a way to demonstrate their equality with other Australians, which um, you know we see with those uh, records that have been written by their colleagues. Uh, but you also say that many aspired to serve their country and that they were motivated perhaps for um, patriotic or loyalty reasons, that they had um, a real connection to their country and that they were um, deeply inspired to protect their country. Yes, well, this is, this is an interesting and a very important point, but it's one on which I think, again, we have to be a bit cautious. Um, in World War I, it's quite clear that some of the Aboriginal men who volunteered were subjected to schooling and, and religious influences on missions which led them to think they were fighting for the British Empire, mm -hmm. as indeed um, many other Australians did. And it's always struck me as, as a... a key question as to why did these men fight for an empire and um, and a country which had actually been the agent of their dispossession and discrimination um, so I think the answer is, is in part what you've already articulated which is that because military service was one of the key badges of citizenship they aspired to, to be able to be treated as full citizens by virtue of their having served um, now we also um, we also know that some of them may have, I think, been subjected to pressure to do so. Uh, for example, I've looked at um, at a particular incident where just after the military authorities in World War One announced that so-called half castes, and I use that term, of course, because it was a term used at the time, were eligible to serve. A whole team of five recruiting officers went up to one Aboriginal mission in Queensland and came back with 17 men. So I do wonder, you know, what kind of mm. real choice those men were being given As about, a about volunteering. The more interesting question is whether at that time, or particularly in World War II, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men felt they were fighting for country in the sense that Indigenous communities would now use the term. I mean, did they feel they were fighting for the land with which they have such a deep spiritual uh, and cultural attachment, or were they fighting for the Australian nation? I and mean, the term country is often used in many different ways. And, and we don't know a lot really about the degree to which they felt they were fighting to defend their, their land, their country, 
I think in World War Two they probably did feel that because after all the land was under attack. But but of course it had already been under attack from from during white settlement. So I think my answer would be to this problem would be that my research is that individuals often mot- are motivated by complex and sometimes conflicting factors. You know, we, we, no human being acts simply because of one reason. You find a sort of layering of, of possible reasons why people might have chosen to fight. And in terms of um, the the kind of examples that you give in the chapter that we're discussing on uh, World War Two, there's some really interesting um, examples such as... Uh, a man called Thompson recruiting 50 Yolngu men, six Solomon Islanders, one Torres Strait Islander and several white non-commissioned officers. And uh, and the unit wasn't armed with rifles um, at the risk of being identified by the Japanese so that the in- Aboriginal men were instead encouraged to carry spears. I mean, in terms of this other way of fighting, which... Uh, which has occurred in this particular situation. I mean, was this a, a common feature or is this a, a kind of interesting, um, unique example of the kind of strengths of which uh, Indigenous Australians had? Um, that's a quite special example, I think. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about World War II is that the Commonwealth Government knew precious little about some of the Indigenous communities in the North. And so they relied very much on people like Thompson, who were anthropologists, who'd been out there doing research on Indigenous communities before World War II broke out. Um, William Stanner was another example. So you get um, these men mobilising groups of uh, local Indigenous men to to, uh, defend Australia and the North. Now, I mean, the decision not to give them guns could be interpreted in a number of ways. Mm. You know, a, a that Australia didn't have enough munitions at that time. B that Aboriginal people were more more familiar with with their own weaponry. But I mean, there is a possible interpretation which is they weren't very comfortable about arming Indigenous men for fear of what they might how they might use their weapons. But um, it's not typical of, of, of what happened in World War Two. That, mm. that but it certainly goes to show that everyone's experience was quite varied and uh, you can't really make major generalisations in this kind of area. Yes, there were, there were really diverse experiences. I mean, in World War Two, for the first time, Aboriginal men um, in, in reasonable numbers start to join the Air Force, for example. Um, only one or two end up as... as commissioned pilots but you know that's a very different experience in world war one where they uh, had largely been consigned to the infantry so yes there's a lot of diversity and i think that's one of the things that i we tried to bring out in the book. Mm, and, and certainly does through uh, the primary sources that you have, as well as obviously the scholarship um, here from many authors. I just want to close out our discussion, uh, Joan, talking about commemoration because it's something which we debate and discuss every year and it's become more and more contested as the years go on. Certainly uh, in history, there seems to be a bit more of um, a healthy discussion, a more rigorous debate 
perhaps than we often have um, more publicly. Uh, but there are obviously hot points and uh, moments of, of conflict or tension around these days. You uh, write a chapter at the end about commemoration. Uh, in terms of the scholarship and research that you've done, just how much uh, have we over the years commemorated and recognised the contribution of Indigenous Australians, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who uh, did serve? Well, I think there's no doubt that that their role in the defence forces had not been given paid much attention uh, to until quite recently. Um, as I said, it's emerged very much as part of a recon- wider reconciliation agenda um, from probably the early 1990s on. And there's been a lot of activity, not just initiated by government agencies, but also by Indigenous communities who have erected their own memorials in some cases to give greater recognition to Indigenous soldiers. Mm. But I think the question that I tried to grapple with at the end of the book, which is one that I think is very important and, and very much on the um, agenda today is whether by recognising traditional military service, that is service in the Army, Navy and the Air Force and Auxiliary Units, we are allowing the debate, the focus, to be deflected away from the very important question which many people have raised as to what recognition and commemoration we give to the violence between white settlers and Indigenous communities since 1788, the so-called frontier wars. So what you'll find, for example, in Canberra now is that you'll have a traditional Anzac Day march of returned soldiers and perhaps family members. But behind that, there'll be now um, a delegation, a contingent of Indigenous people and their supporters carrying banners saying, lest we forget frontier wars. So I think this is a debate that is emerging. It's very important. You'll see it in the press um, this week as to how Australia now comes to remember this more difficult, in some ways, episode of its past, which is violence on the frontier. Well, absolutely. And certainly it's come up on this show uh, quite a few times. Uh, I had Mark McKenna join me to talk about his quarterly essay a couple of weeks ago and the frontier wars and the recent uh, increase in scholarship on this area and uh, in the discussion around uh, genocide and the numbers of uh, people, Aboriginal people who were killed, um, you know, is is huge. And it's been very hard to... Um, enumerate exactly just how many uh, you know did die in that conflict but it is a really significant conflict that we don't tend to talk about don't quite understand um, more publicly uh, in your view how do we bring uh, the frontier wars into our discussions and about Anzac and commemoration because it is a very very significant part of uh, Australia's history Yes, well, that's a, a very, very important question to which I probably don't yet have an answer. But I think um, the War Memorial's position has been that, that the violence on the frontier was not a war, that it was um, not conducted by national defence forces and that its responsibility, the memorials, is to commemorate um, those conflicts in which national defence forces served. 
Um, my, I, I, I mean, I don't know whether the War Memorial is the appropriate place to commemorate frontier wars. Possibly it is the National Museum of Australia. Um, possibly we need a, a separate set of rituals to remember and commemorate that violence. But um, I think a you know, comparable exhibition to the ones that are say in the War Memorial about particular conflicts, uh, one that was focused on the frontier wars, and we do know quite a lot about where, where the violence occurred now, even though the numbers killed may be in dispute. I think that may be a, a good start and this, that, that we do begin to systematically acknowledge and, uh, and promulgate information about those conflicts. Yes, and as you've said, it is linked in with reconciliation and a broader move to acknowledge uh, our past and the dispossession that occurred. So um, it certainly is a lot bigger than just uh, the conflict, but although that violence was uh, obviously a huge part of that experience. Um, Joan, I really commend you for uh, co-editing this book and to all the authors who have contributed this research. It's a huge effort and uh, I just found it fascinating uh, to read through it and there is just so much in it that um, we certainly have only scratched the surface. So uh, I really thank you for giving us your time today and uh, I would really um, look forward to following this scholarship further and seeing what more uh, comes from it. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. And perhaps just in conclusion, I, I want to say that the project was not only one that involved Indigenous and non-Indigenous historians, but it was very strongly supported by various government agencies, which I think does um, speak to the desire on the part of institutions like Defence and Veterans Affairs, the Royal Memorial and the National Archives to support this research. So, um, you know, we couldn't have done it without a wide range of support from different uh, government authorities. Absolutely. And um, as you mentioned, there is a website that people can look up called ourmobserved.anu.edu.au and um, and that was also funded by an Australia Research Council linkage grant. So, um, as you said, the there are various governments who have supported and made that project possible. Yes, and we hope that that website and the interviews on it will be a lasting resource um, for people who are interested in this question. Indeed, we will put the link uh, up there to our social media pages. Thank you so much, Joan Beaumont, for joining us. Thank you very much, Amy. Pleasure to talk to you. That was Professor Emerita Joan Beaumont. Uh, she is a very distinguished historian of Australian history and military studies and uh, she's based at the Australian National University and she's one of the co-editors of the book Serving Our Country, Indigenous Australians, War, Defence and Citizenship. The co-editor is Alison Kadzow and just some of the contributors are Mick Dodson, John Maynard and Noah Reisman there are many others so I highly encourage you to check that out and that website uh, Serving Our Country it's um, a really great resource and obviously as Joan said 200 interviews have been conducted just for this book in addition to the other uh, research that was conducted in archives you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with me Amy Mullins 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.